Hi, everyone. Um, we'll wait a few more minutes. Um, the room will start in around four to five minutes. Hi, Enrico. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Um, let's, make we, let's maybe wait another minute. I know people are already mm -hmm. waiting. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, and uh, then I'll introduce you, and then the stage is yours. Yeah, great. Thanks.
Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming. Welcome to the Science Society. Um, we are very um, honored to have our um, really um, amazing uh, researcher, uh, Dr. Enrico Rinaldi. And he will talk about his um, really exciting uh, cutting edge research today. And <laughs> it's like this time it's appropriate to say, I would say. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a research scientist at the University of Michigan and um, also at the Riken Center for Quantum Computing and Theoretical Quantum Physics and Cluster of Pioneering Research. He, um, he did the Master uh, Bachelor in Physics in 2009 at the University of Milan and the Master of Science in Theoretical Physics at the University of Milan. And then he did his PhD in Theoretical Particle Physics uh, at the University of Edinburgh. And um, yeah, he's currently based in Tokyo hosted by the Riken Center for Quantum Computing and the Theoretical Quantum Physics Laboratory. And um, he is a visiting scientist there um, in interdisciplinary theoretical and mathematical science program, where he collaborates on projects in quantum computing, cosmology, and dark matter theories. Um, yeah, his academic research is at the interface of computational and theoretical tools applied to solving the mystery, mysteries of the universe. Current projects span from using deep learning and quantum simulation to understand quantum gravity to high performance computations of subatomic particles and theories that could explain the origin of matter. Um, yeah, he's working on several projects and um, yeah, we are very honored to have you here. Um, and we are very excited about it. Um, so yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, it's my first time uh, actually doing something like this. So um, I think the way I'd like to do it, um, I, I would like to keep it quite interactive. Uh, I, I don't know if that's okay, but um, yeah, you can basically stop me at any time. Um, if you have questions or if you want to uh, know more about uh, something that I said. And I would start by giving a broad introduction, like more about the general concepts behind the, the work that we're discussing today. And, and then I will maybe move on uh, to some of the technical and numerical details. As um, Katarina said, this um, my research in general tends to be quite uh, broad in scope uh, because I am a computational physicist by training. So I, I use numerical tools um, both for simulations and for data analysis. And then I apply these tools to different topics in physics. So these topics can be um, related to astrophysics, for example, cosmology, but also subatomic particles, and uh, space-time. So it's it, it's really um, exciting for me to be able to actually get in contact with people from different fields. And um, I'm actually really happy to 
to be here and discussing with you guys. Um, okay, so let me start from um, some general concepts related to um, quantum gravity. Uh, it might sound like kind of a complicated topic, and it definitely is. Um, but um, what what is the idea behind it? So we we all know that uh, there is gravity, okay? And we do have a very good theory for gravity, and that's Einstein's general relativity from uh, 19, the beginning of the last century, basically. And this theory works really well for everything we can see in the sky and for everything that's, you know, orbiting around Earth and planets. And for example, um, you might not know, but um, the GPS technology that's in your phone and in, uh, you know, um, navigation for um, autonomous driving and everything that's related to moving around based on GPS, it's possible only because we have Einstein's general relativity theory. So we can actually be very precise of knowing where we are because we are using the, the laws of uh, gravity the way Einstein designed them, and they work extremely well at least for, um, for us here on Earth. But there are some objects that we know of, uh, specifically black holes, where um, and they were predicted by Einstein's general relativity, but they are kind of like very extreme uh, examples of things that can happen in, in gravity theories. And we are really interested in studying them. And, I would go back to black holes because they're like the center of the, the piece here. But for now, you just have to know that they exist. Uh, we, we know um, basically how to look for them, what are their signatures. And you know that uh, for a black hole, um, the force of gravity is so strong that nothing can escape them. Um, if they, there is something orbiting around a black hole, eventually it will fall in. Okay, and, and we don't know what is inside these black holes. From the point of view of the theory, there is a event horizon, you know, something um, that surrounds these black holes and acts as, a, as an horizon. And then inside the horizon, we have no access to the information. Um, this is what concerns the, the gravity side the, of quantum gravity. Now let me go um, and explain what quantum means. And um, so quantum is related to quantum mechanics or quantum field theory, and it is a um, framework, um, very general mathematical framework to describe a theory of particles, which are very small. So we're talking about uh, atomic and subatomic scales. And for this type of particles, we have um, equations based on quantum mechanics and quantum field theory that are also very precise. They work extremely well. And they are uh, basically underlying the entire description of electronics and um, computers. And also, of course, uh, basic science like uh, high energy particle physics accelerators and stuff like that. And for you know this topic of quantum theory and quantum mechanics, you might know about the Higgs boson, 
that was discovered um, about 10 years ago, that was that particle was predicted by the theory in 1964, but it was only observed in 2012. So as you can see, there's a, um, a lot of work going on here, both on the theoretical side and on the experimental side. Now, this quantum theory uh, has different laws than quantum mechanics. And if we try to um, include gravity um, in this quantum theory, uh, we cannot do it. So we can describe the interactions between elementary particles, but we cannot describe the gravitational interactions between these very small particles using the same framework and then this takes us to uh, back to black holes because um, if we try to use the rules of quantum mechanics for particles near black holes where the gravitational force is really strong uh, we get into some troubles and this is the famous um, um, Hawking's paradox information loss paradox or Hawking's radiation um, this is probably something you've heard in the news as well. Um, it, it's related to the fact that the information of particles around a black hole, when it goes into the black hole, may be lost forever. Because the black holes, according to Stephen Hawking's, evaporate. So at some point, a black hole will disappear. And so the question is, what happens to the, all the stuff? that went inside the black hole. So all the information that went inside the black hole. And the rules of quantum mechanics say that the information is always conserved. It doesn't disappear. It may go somewhere else, but it doesn't disappear. So at first sight, this is a paradox because Hawking's radiation applied to black holes is saying that the information can actually be lost forever. So the gravitational force around black holes and the laws of quantum mechanics, they don't go hand in hand. There, there is some problem there that we need to solve. And this is um, a very exciting research topic. People have been working on this for about two or three decades, maybe more. And I mean, Einstein, of course, tried to do this, uh, tried to unify the rules of quantum mechanics and, and his theory of general relativity, but he couldn't do it. Um, and we are still actually working towards it. And we do have some clues um, on how to do this quantum gravity theory, matching of quantum mechanics and, and gravity. And all the clues that we have usually come from string theory. And they are always related to black holes because black holes are a very good, let's say, um, mental experiment uh, ground or um, some sort of place, even though uh, we can only study theoretical um, laws about them and we cannot really test in experiments what happens with them, we still have, uh, we still use them as a good uh, ground for understanding this, this very difficult theoretical uh, problem. So this is more or less the, um, the stage 
where my research is entering. And <clears throat> I should say that um, the work that um, I've done in the recent recent paper that we are discussing today is a um, is of numerical nature. We we try to come up with new numerical tools to study the properties of these black holes and what happens um, inside them. I think um, this is probably a, a good time for questions about the um, the background because after this I'd, I'd like to maybe be a bit more technical about what these tools are. Uh, yeah, I'd like to ask a question. Yes. Is your line of attack uh, in the uh, in the um, uh, fashion of uh, ADS CFT, the uh, antidecitor conformal yes. theory uh, correspondence? Right. Um, so, what what the what the string theory approach to to this um, taught us is that there is a um, correspondence or let's say a dictionary between um, quantum mechanics or quantum field theories of particles and uh, theories of gravity. So what you mentioned is um, the ADS-CFT correspondence where ADS is the gravity side. It stands for anti-decitter uh, space and so you have a theory of gravity in anti-decitter space. And CFT stands for conformal field theory, which is a um, theory of fields or the excitations of the fields, which are the particles. And the correspondence say basically that the two sides of this um, uh, correspondence are equivalent. So in, in certain limits. So if you have a theory of gravity in ADS, what you can describe is the same exact thing as you can describe with a CFT, a conformity theory, not in a space-time, in, you know, in, in somewhere else without gravity. And actually the, uh, the interesting thing here is that the two theories actually are in different dimensions. And so ADS can be, for example, in five dimensions, and uh, the CFT can be in four dimensions. And there usually is always the, a difference of one dimension between the gravity side of this duality and the particle side of this duality. And that is why this duality um, in general uh, goes under the name of the holographic duality. It's holographic in the sense that um, a hologram can show you something that is three-dimensional, but in reality, the information about this three-dimensional shape is encoded into a surface, which is two-dimensional. So you have a different of one dimension between what you're seeing as a hologram in 3D and what it actually is, the information, which is uh, in uh, on a two-dimensional surface so the line of attack as you said is um under the umbrella of the holographic duality 
as it was originally um, thought of, and then became ADS-CFT with a very precise correspondence between theories in 1996 by Juan Baldacena, and then became, after that, um, when all, a lot of people started working on it, a more general correspondence between gravity theories and gauge theories or field theories. So yes, basically we are trying to use this duality, this dictionary to study a gravitational problem, a black hole, using a particle language, uh, which is what these matrix models that I will describe later are. So these matrix models are particle theories, but we know that the correspondence tell us these particle theories are actually describing the same thing as a gravitational theory where you have black holes. Yeah, thanks for the question, actually. I, I, sure. I should have gone into this uh, duality in the introduction. Got you. Thank you. Um, may I ask just a quick uh, question, please? About the scale yep. of the black holes that you are working on, is it related to like uh, the microscopic black holes and the uh, after the Big Bang, which is like the size of a comet, microscopic black holes? Does it have correspondent to that? Also, uh, about mentioning the Hawking radiations, there is a process like leptogenesis and hydrogenesis that is related to the matter antimatter. Does it account for the type and uh, of the Hawking radiation and the entropy within the black hole itself. Thank you. Okay, so um, let me try to answer uh, both questions. So in terms of what black holes um, I'm studying, right now, with actually with, with this paper and in general with these numerical tools that I am developing, we are studying a type of black hole that does not exist in, in our world. It, it's a black hole in a specific geometry of a quantum gravity theory. So we we do not, so we, I mentioned the ADS CFT correspondence. We do not have a precise correspondence between our gravity and a particle theory yet, but we do know that the a correspondence, a more general correspondence exists for and other theories of gravity. So I am working in these other theories of gravity, which have a different type of space-time, not the one that we observe in our cosmos, but a different one, a which is um, not the same in terms, for example, of curvature or expansion or or, thing, or properties of the geometry of the space-time. But nevertheless, it is still a theory of gravity. So we think that by studying in general, these theories of gravity is where we, we have the tools, then we can understand more how to elaborate a new theory of gravity for our own universe, our own cosmology. And so we expect that in the future by working um, in this line of research, we will be able to um, describe both the microscopic black holes, like primordial black holes that you mentioned, and also the supermassive black holes that are, for example, at the center of our galaxy. 
so yeah, that's the first question. The second question about uh, the Hawking radiation, um, I'm not sure um, what kind of connection can be made uh, with leptogenesis and uh, biogenesis, actually. Uh, I'm not an expert in that. So I don't know if there is a connection between the Hawking's radiation and evaporation of primordial black holes and the, the origin of the matter-antimatter asymmetry. I'm sorry. I mean, uh, sometimes there is a certain type of um, particles that they are the same uh, antiparticle at the same time, like Marjana fermions. Yeah. So in in the matter of, uh, say, the particle-antiparticle itself gets into a black hole, so what would be the corresponding? It's just like a thought and what does has to do with the gravity? I mean, like what, like uh, transformation, uh, uh, tr sorry, translational modification with the simulations that you are making about the event horizon itself. Just like a thought of mine. I'm sorry, if it's far-fetched. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I understand. Um, I, I don't think though uh, that I can, I can answer that with my research right now. <laughs> sorry. Thank you so much for your informative answer. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I also have uh, some questions. Yeah. Thanks mm -hmm. for, thanks for being here today. Uh, so, uh, I, can you uh, uh, just uh, like explain, you know, very generally, uh, you know, what people uh, uh, were trying to, how people, like, what approach people try to. Uh, uh, to uh, merge, you know, uh, quantum mechanics and gravity together, and like, what were the difficulties? Like, how did they fail? And then, why uh, gravity, uh, you know, emerge? Uh, how gravity emerge in in string theory? Uh, just, you know, just uh, if if you can explain yeah. that, you know, in basic term, can you uh, can you? Uh, yeah, I, I think I can. I can try. Yes. Okay. So you might have heard of string theory as a you know theory of everything so when it was first discovered or formulated people really thought that it would be able to unify all the interactions all the forces including gravity and what string theory does is um it's basically saying we don't have i mean what we think are particles and what we think is space-time we don't we don't really work with those elementary degrees of freedom everything that we see is actually uh, made of strings and these strings are these objects you know like like the strings in your shoes these are objects that are um, one-dimensional and they vibrate and they can be open open strings or they can actually uh, close on themselves so you can connect the two ends of the string and make a closed uh, string and these objects vibrates and each vibration can be interpreted as a different particle that we see in um, in our um, daily life so like electron photons uh, protons all these elementary particles under string theory are actually uh, just vibrations of 
strings. So the elementary objects in string theory are the strings and the way they interact with each other, they connect with each other, they create different shapes and they, um, for example, are responsible for creating geometries. But string theory is, um, after it was initially uh, formulated, um, was studied by a lot of different people. I, it, it's one of the biggest research endeavors of our modern times. And by now we know that there are actually an infinite number of different string theories. And it's really hard to make um, real predictions uh, for what a string theory will tell us about our world. So it's not useful as a um, predictive theory of nature, but it's still useful as a way of thinking about hard problems. And it actually initiated a lot of um, very interesting developments in uh, the information loss paradox, like uh, Hawking radiation and evaporation and in general quantum gravity. So by now, um, some of the quantum gravity approaches are based on string theory. There are others um, approaches that uh, I'm not an expert of, but there are other approaches like um, loop quantum gravity, for example. But the approach that um, I am usually you know, used to in my work is the one based on string theory because it um, it led to this holographic duality and correspondence. So the way we describe gravity, quantum gravity is by using a theory of um, a, similar to superstrings. So a very complicated quantum mechanical um, theory of these elementary objects with very specific rules and symmetries in such a way that um, you create some geometry, which is your space time. And then you have um, masses and matter moving inside this space time and creating, for example, black holes or uh, curvature and, and things like this. But for our own, universe with the specific curvature that is uh, measured by experiments with the expansion of the universe that is measured by experiments um, we don't have um, for example a precise correspondence with a um, particle theory under the holographic duality yet there are attempts and some of my colleagues are working on that but we don't have a full uh, fully fledged theory yet. So it's something that we are working towards and we want to be able to describe our own universe using this duality so that we can make use of all these tools for that we have for particle theories. Uh, yeah, thanks for the answer. I, uh, I think I, I heard somewhere that yes, the, uh, the universe that we live in is not the universe is described by the ADS uh, uh, magic uh, or distant or whatever, right? And so, uh, but then I, ho I also have a follow-up question. 
So suppose, you know, uh, we, we will be able to find a correspondence uh, yes. in the future. Then, uh, then, you know, should we expect something like, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, like, you know, like the, the, gen the classical general relativity, will it be some kind of, an, you know, an, expect, uh, an average, you know, averaging of the, of the mic microscopic, uh, uh, you know, gravitational theory? Is, I'm asking this because, you know, like um, very basically, you know, in quantum mechanics, for example, you know, you, if you take the, uh, there's a theorem where Newton's law, you know, emerged as a, an average, you know, of, uh, of some microscopic uh, law, right? And then also in max, you know, you have the, uh, I think the column law or something like that, you know, they emerge as uh, averaging value, you know, of, uh, uh, microscopic yes. interaction. So we we we, we yes. should we expect the same thing with the uh, gravity. Yes, that's um. I mean, that's basically how um, how physics so far has worked, where we have a description of nature at some level, like general relativity or Newton's laws, and at one level it works really well. But we know that it is actually not the full story. And if you change this level and you go, for example, to a smaller length scale where you have microscopic degrees of freedom, then those laws don't apply anymore. They just emerge as a, um, as you said, averaging or some sort of uh, process that nature applies that let us describe things at different levels using different theories. And, and we, we think that it should be the same for gravity. So you might have general relativity as a uh, uh, description at a certain level, but if you go deeper and start including quantum effects, then you will see that the general relativity emerges as a, from a process of you know, averaging microscopic degrees of freedom. And in this ADS-CFT, uh, correspondence or the holographic duality. Um, we, we tend to think that way because we we can think that there are microscopic degrees of freedom inside the black hole, for example. And we want to be able to describe the properties of the black hole, like its mass or its area or uh, its charge or temperature using microscopic properties. So this is why the, this holographic duality is appealing to a lot of people, including myself, because it, it, it lets you see things from two different points of view. And then you can choose um, which one is more convenient for you to make calculations and, and predictions. So in, in my work, we, we used these matrix models as a particle theories that uh, quantum mechanics, uh, so the quantum mechanics side of the duality, not the gravity side, but we, we use them just so that, um, just because it's more convenient for us to study them with these numerical methods. And when we extract information about this theory, we know that the duality connects the properties that we are calculating to real properties of the gravitational system where you have the black hole. 
So yeah, I'm actually, um, I'd like to talk about that now. Thank you, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So in- oh, can, our... can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Uh, Erico? Yeah, so yes, uh, uh, yes. Uh, thanks for you know giving this uh, lecture on a very deep subject. So from uh, uh, a person who uh, understand uh, say uh, second law of uh, thermal, uh, I mean uh, the definition of uh, uh, entropy, and uh, yeah, what is the uh, you know I understand there's a uh, information that the word uh, comes up a lot uh, at the horizon uh, gra uh, gravitational horizon. The uh, what is, what is the inform can you uh, uh, using you know in general terms that uh, uh, explain uh, what is the information that is uh, 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 from in your in this field that you're dealing with I read some you know uh, uh, story like you know the information seems to be lost or yes uh, right so um, can you, yeah thank I you. can I can I can quickly uh, talk about that. Um, so the, um, this information loss business um, is usually called um, a paradox because uh, we, we cannot explain with the current status of um, our uh, laws of nature, but we can actually um, expand these laws of nature. For example, the second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy um, always increase and we if we look at um, the evaporation of a black hole this um, this law seems to be violated but people have actually generalized this second law of thermodynamics in a way that uh, we know now it can be applied to black holes as well so the point is is not just about the second law of thermodynamics, but it's more about how do we combine the fact that the black hole evaporates with our understanding that um, the information should be conserved. And this is what um, what is usually referred to as the page curve in, in black holes. So the entropy um, increases as we uh, lose information. But when the black hole evaporates, um, when we do the calculations the right way, it actually looks like the information was not lost anymore. So somehow the black hole evaporating and the entire environment, the universe around it, or the entire space-time around the black hole, somehow um, have a mechanism that allowed the informations to escape the black hole somehow we don't know how and um and come back to the environment so even though the black hole evaporates and disappear somehow in this process something happens that um, is able to conserve information and uh, maintain the second law of thermodynamics this is now subject of a intense um research program and it's it's related to to what I'm doing with matrix models because we we want to be able to use um, computational tools 
to understand the states, the microstates of these matrix models and how they uh, encode information. Because if you think of a black hole as, uh, which is a gravitational object, under the light of this holographic duality, then you can equivalently, equivalently think of this black hole as a collection of particles arranged in a certain way. And if you can compute how these particles are arranged and what happens, for example, when you throw other stuff into the black hole and how does this microstate adjust, then you might have a way to compute uh, the, what is the mechanism that allows black holes to exchange information with the environment. So we, we know this is what happens, at least, you know, in this um, ADS-CFT correspondence, we know that there are processes that uh, allow information to escape from the black hole and guarantee that we are not breaking the second law of thermodynamics. And this can only be done in a full quantum gravity theory. And, but we still don't know what is the exact form or mechanism that um, is making the theory behave like that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but um, this is actually very, it's, it's studied right now by a lot of people. It's still under development. We, we know what to, we know that it's working. We don't know how, and that's why we, we need to, you know, study these objects more in depth. Yeah. Thanks uh, for the, for the sharing. The, uh, just quickly, the, you, you, I hear you mentioned the word, uh, uh generalized, uh, uh, TD. Uh, second second law. Yeah. law. Then, uh, in what sense, uh, that the generalization is. And, uh, so, uh, is it, I mean, in, in, standard TD, we have either a closed system or you assume a heat bath of the environment or uh, you, you're uh, also uh, the, uh, uh, what is t uh, considered as a microstates. I mean, if that's, I mean, just in general terms, and then, well, how does generalization? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know the exact details of the formulation um in general i think in general terms i can say that it the the system includes so the black hole and the uh, the entire universe so it, it's it's not um it's it's a closed system overall but it's um i, I don't know what are the actual ingredients that distinguish the the generalized second law from the usual one from classical thermodynamics. Can, but can there I, are yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'll say it later. No, I I I don't think I can uh, I can answer more than this. I cannot add yeah, more th detail. Thank you, Eric. Thank Louis. And thanks. Maybe, maybe, yeah, I'll just add uh, a bit color to the uh, uh, to to uh, Enrico's statement. Um, I think the uh, information uh, paradox is uh, more uh, about uh, actually uh, about the quantum mechanics rather than the uh, thermodynamics second law. 
because uh, quantum mechanics, uh, according to quantum mechanics, uh, the time evolution is a unitary operator, so that um, there's no uh, so so the uh, the norm is uh, is constant over time, and there's yep. nothing lost. Uh, yeah. So, but the um, the but that's in contradictory uh, contradiction. Uh, with the uh, black hole evaporation, and so so then uh, the that that's the contradiction, and I think the uh, at least the solution uh, offered by ADS CFT is that um, it's the black hole is uh, situated uh, particles situated on the boundary of the C, um, uh, uh, ADS CFT uh, the the so and then uh, it is still unitary. And uh, I think, um, but but the details have to be worked out. Uh, yeah, that, that's this, this is a, 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 exactly the interesting part, right? So, um, when you say bring the term information into uh, quantum mechanics, that's uh, uh, for for thermodynamics that uh, 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 people, you know. Uh, 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 the community it's, it's yeah it's, yeah it's there interesting is an because entropy you, definition yeah there is an yeah it's, that's it's, a von neumann entropy yeah oh, go ahead sorry so what, what is the microstate in von neumann which i'm not familiar uh, I mean, by the way the information entropy uh the shannon i believe that i read somewhere it's actually the same it's equivalent to uh the td yes the, yes uh yeah, so you can define entropy um, by thinking of microstates, uh, if you can define those microstates. And if you define them in a certain way, then you can say that the the actual, you know, the, the two definitions of entropy that you use, um, they are the same. So you, you can still use the the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, it's you just have to change the definition of the entropy. But in some cases, where you define the microstates in a certain way, they uh, the definition of the entropy is the same. Uh, yeah, but, but I think von Neumann is a little bit uh, more generalized than uh, Shannon entropy, uh, because of von Neumann's uh, entropy op the uh, defined is defined on the operator, the density operator, uh, whereas uh, the uh, Shannon entropy is on the scalar, so Shannon entropy would be a special case of uh, 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 von Neumann entropy. So in this uh, the von, uh, uh, operator, uh, the density operator definition, the uh, does that apply to? Uh, is there something like a a, a uh, so, uh, what, what would be, I guess, the for for pedagogical, like, a, can you give a, a simple example where a uh, Schrodinger equation uh, description of, uh, say, a multi-particle uh, states that uh, there is a uh, entropy uh, a definition of uh, based upon the the quantum states of the. So is that the, how this line of uh, work? I guess there's probably textbooks to I need to follow. Is there a reference for that, or I mean, I, well, here in my mind, because in, you know, the Schrodinger equation is just like uh, like new new, new uh, 
old dynamics equation is time reversible, right? But for TV, you need a re irreversible processes, i.e., something like a, a temporary. I mean, uh, yeah, a, 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 you know, configuration of energy is so distributed that you cannot uh, go back. It, there's a, some unit di direction comes out, so that's a. Uh, what I see as a so a Schrodinger equations. I mean, so far I don't see there's a such a concept of uh, irreversibility. Maybe I'm just uh, yeah. There's a, actually there's a, uh, no hiding theorem, uh, informational hiding theorem. Uh, talking talking exactly about that, but but I guess we we can have the, this discussion uh, later. I, I think I would suggest that uh, Enrico continue on uh, yeah, with sure. the main yeah. topic thanks. of the yeah. uh, talk. Great, thank you. Thanks, uh, everybody. Yep. Thanks. Okay. So um, I, I want to I want to introduce this matrix model, right? I mean, they are in the title of my paper. So what what are they, and and why do we do what what are the simulations that we are doing? So th these matrix models are basically a um, a dimensional reduction, which means um, we have a theory of particles in in higher dimensions, and then we uh, collapse most of the dimensions such that the um, final theory that we end up with is actually a theory of quantum mechanics, where there is only time, there is no space, and the degrees of freedom in this theory um, of quantum mechanics are matrices and so they're not uh, they're not particles they're, they're matrices describing uh, fields uh, that existed in the higher dimensional theory that we started with and this higher dimensional theory when when you start with this higher dimensional theory um, you you still have in mind this ads cft duality so you start from a theory that is super symmetric and that has uh, all the nice properties that you need to work um, with this duality as far as we we know today and so these properties carry down to this dimensionally reduced theory which is now quite simpler um, at least to um, attack numerically because it has a time dimension and uh, but there is no space and it has several degrees of freedom which are the elements of the matrices so there are several matrices and the main model that we uh, we work with in um, ADS-CFT um, is uh, has nine of these matrices and even though in the paper for technical reasons and to keep things um, simpler uh, we only use two matrices um, you can have an arbitrary number of matrices. Of course, the theory will still be described uh, in the same way. You just decide how many degrees of freedom you want to include in your description. So if you're working with a, uh, let's say, toy model, like we did in the paper, you can have two matrices. And if you want to work with a full theory that people have studied in the context of ADS-CFT, then you would choose a theory with nine matrices. But the description uh, um, of the Hamiltonian or the action 
you know, the, the equations of motions of these matrices, they are actually the same uh, in, in both models. You just change how, the number of degrees of freedom. So, so, so the matrices are the uh, Lie algebra, the uh, generator, uh, infinitesimal uh, uh, Lie algebra generator, right? So these matrices are uh, the uh, scalars that you get from compactifying uh, gauge fields in higher dimensions. And they are in the Lie algebra because they are um, yeah, in the adjoint representation. So that's why they're, they are scalars, but they are matrices. So it's, it's like um, the, um, the dimensional reduction of a gauge field, which is a vector. But if you think at a ve of a vector in a high dimensional space and you project uh, this vector down uh, to one dimension, then you only see a point. So you only see a scalar. I mean, that's the idea of the dimensional reduction. So these matrices actually encode all the degrees of freedom of the higher dimensional theory. So everything that was described um, in space uh, in higher dimension is now described in uh, this internal space of the matrices, because now the matrices have many elements inside them. So you can think, for example, of the um, elements along the diagonal of these matrices. So imagine these matrices being uh, matrices with n rows and n columns, so squared matrices. So now you have n squared elements, and you have um, you can you can represent these matrices in your uh, favorite basis um, because these matrices are, for example, uh, have a symmetry and they are special unitary complex matrices. So if you are working with matrices that are two by two, so they belong to the um, um, SU2 representation. And so you can use, for example, the poly operators as a, as a basis for, this, uh, for these matrices if they are two by two. And if the, you have um, three by three matrices belonging to SU3, then you will have eight generators uh, of the Lie algebra. So this would be like the Gelman matrices and, and so forth. So when you want to work with the ADS-CFT duality um, and the so-called BFSS model with nine matrices, you actually want to have these matrices very large. So this number of rows and columns uh, has to go to very large numbers. You know, uh, in, in theory, you would go to infinity, you know, have these matrices be as big as you can, um, where the number of elements grows to infinity. But for our uh, numerical experiments, we keep them uh, small because then we can actually compute everything um, with uh, with precision. And um, so we work with matrices that are two by two or three by three, okay? And we work with two of these matrices. And the, um, the theory is basically describing the interaction of these matrices uh, with each other. The 
difficult problem when you have these theories of matrices is to solve the equations. Okay, so um, what, how, how can you solve the equations for these uh, matrix models? If the matrices are small and you only have two of them, for example, then, for example, you can solve the uh, um, Schrodinger equation by diagonalizing the Hamiltonian and finding all the eigenstates. So you can think of this as a um, normal quantum mechanics problem with a state vector and a matrix representation for your Hamiltonian. And you find the eigen energies and eigenstates in the energy basis belonging to this um, Hamiltonian inside the Hilbert space of the system. You can do it uh, exactly if your system is small enough that the matrix representation of the Hamiltonian fits in your computer and you can apply um, and you know eigenvalue and eigenvector um, algorithms to to this matrix. Um, this clearly becomes unfeasible as the dimension of the Hilbert space grows. And the dimension of the Hilbert space grows like uh, two to the n, where n is the number of uh, particles. And so it's an exponential growth. And very soon you will not be able to fit anything even on the biggest supercomputer in the world. There is just not enough uh, memory available for doing these computations. So we actually want to um, explore, and that's what we do in the paper, different um, methods based on quantum computers and on deep learning, where we actually don't use the um, this, this matrix representation of the Hamiltonian in full, but we use, for example, a approximation of the wave function, which is given by um, a quantum circuit on a quantum computer or by a neural network when we use deep learning methods. So the problem that we set, um, we set up in our paper is to start by extracting the ground state of these matrix models. And basically this uh, amounts to measuring the energy of the, the lowest energy possible in the system. And it's a, it's a good way to start, you know, thinking about the next steps, because if you cannot get even the energy right uh, with these methods, then there, there is literally no hope to, to go beyond that. So the first thing um, you have to do is to at least be able to get the energy correct using these new numerical tools of quantum computers and, and deep learning. And if you can do that, then you can move to the next steps. Uh, sorry for to, to interrupt, but like, did you use something like gradient descent to solve the something that for the lowest energy, something like that for deep in, in the deep learning method? Uh, wait, okay. So for the deep learning method, we use gradient descent um, to train 
the neural network. But and but it is a um, it is in in when we okay that's that's for deep learning okay but for um, if you don't use deep learning and if you just diagonalize the uh, the Hamiltonian and find the lowest energy eigenstate and for that you can use uh, more efficient methods that um, that are able to solve for um, eigenvalues. Sure. So, so, so uh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. So let me just try to, if I understand things correctly. So you say that you are playing with the problem of uh, measuring the, the ground state energy. And for that, you, you, you approach the problem from two uh, different uh, ways. The first is using uh, quantum computing, where you actually do a measurement of the lowest energy state. And then yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I can explain. Yeah, I can explain um, those those two approaches. So, but but first, the there is what what we what you know um, I would call a benchmark. I mean, we need to know what is the exact result, okay? And the exact result that uh, we can compute for this small uh, matrix problem is coming from a procedure which is the exact diagonalization of the Hamiltonian. So actually take the entire Hamiltonian and find the ground state, the uh, eigenstate with the lowest energy. So this can be done exactly, okay? So, so I, I suppose, uh, let me make a guess, uh, are you using, instead of diagonalization, are you using a variational uh, method to uh, getting the the, uh, the 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 quadratic form uh, the uh, getting the the uh, the minimization of the quadratic yeah. form and the variational uh, so okay. for quantum com for the quantum computing and deep learning approaches yes we are actually using variational methods so I, I can explain that so so right now we have so these these three methods so the benchmark is coming from you know an exact diagonalization method so there is no approximation okay and that is what we want to be able to reproduce with the other two methods this will give us a benchmark and say okay we know that these methods work if we can reproduce the benchmark values okay if we cannot reproduce the benchmark values then we know the other algorithms based on quantum computers and deep learning actually have some errors that we need to be able to account for. Okay, so this is the benchmark. The um, the two methods based on quantum computers and deep learning, they are not exact and they use approximations. In particular, they are variational methods. So variational methods basically work by um, approximating the solution using uh, either a family of functions or, in this case, a quantum circuit uh, parameterized by some uh, rotation gates or a neural network parameterized by the weights and biases inside the network. And these uh, parameterized functions, just call them functions in general, um, are a representation, an approximate representation of the full wave function. And then we use a variational method to find the parameters 
inside these parameterized functions in such a way that the energy of this wave function represented with these specific forms is the lowest. So the lowest energy would correspond to the ground state energy. Okay. So what are the what are the possible outcomes of this variational approach? Well, if your parameterization is good enough, then your exploration of the parameter space will allow you to find an optimal point where the energy of the state is the lowest and this lowest energy is the same as the exact benchmark one. If that is true, then you know that um, you have reached exactly the ground state, but a variational method doesn't guarantee that you will reach that point. It only guarantees that you will have a so-called upper bound on the, on the value of the energy. So you will get to the lowest possible energy given your parameterization that you started with. And how close you can get to the exact answer will depend on the algorithm that you use, uh, the computational resources that you have, and the number of parameters that you include in your um, function, and many other things that have to be studied um, a little bit um, empirically, I would say. But these methods have been used successfully in many other fields of physics, from quantum chemistry to um, quantum machine learning. And so we know um, that there are several algorithms that we can explore. And basically what we set up to do is to take these algorithms that already exist and are um, utilized in different fields of physics, and we apply them to these matrix models as a first time just for benchmarking how they behave for these systems, which are quite different from what people have done in the past for these methods. So our sure. is, a, is an exploration of the methods. Yeah. Yes. I have a question, Enrico, if Tuan, let me ask my question, if you don't mind. Enrico, so if we just considering the equation of the black hole, for example, we want to put the data inside the black hole. For example, it can be the brain memory, okay? When we just put it there, so do we have an unstable situation there? Because we need a macro adjustment based upon whatever you said. And when we are switching from the matrices from two to nine, for example, do we have any unstable stage with different level of the energy or not? Um. I, I don't know if I am understanding your questions about data, but um, the, um, if you use, for example, this model with nine matrices, um, then the black hole that you are representing is, is not actually stable. 
okay so it's whole even macro adjustment is on a stable stage yeah i'm still not sure if i understood the original question but in the yeah it's there, there is um the so-called uh, meta stability meta stability Thank you. Uh, yeah, I hope I didn't miss uh, uh, something, but like uh, I think uh, the first problem that you, you need to uh, to answer is like um, did, how how did you make sure that you know the the your neural network or your quantum circuit was a good approximation to the real wave function? Yes. So you don't know. Um, before you start, you don't know how good your approximation will be. So the, the, the final answer of a variational procedure depends on your choice of the variational ansatz or variational function that you use. And this is an intrinsic problem of uh, all variational methods. If you use a function that is to say good, you know, good enough, then you can uh, you can go very close to the correct answer. But if you mm. happen to choose a very bad answer, then there's nothing you can do. You will not get a good final answer. Uh, just uh, quickly, the uh... So you already know the uh, correct answer to begin with? In this case, yes. This benchmark is the correct answer that we know. We, we know by calculating it with other methods. Uh, are, are, are you, I mean, for this, uh, seems it's a learning problem, problem. Usually you have a initial condition I mean, uh, the, the mm -hmm. local versus global, yes. right? So that's, yes. I think that you, you said sensitive, it's sensitive on your initial guess as well, right? The initial guess for the parameters that can be, I mean, everything can be fixed by just doing more experiments. So start from different initial points is, is one thing to do. And that's actually what we did in the paper to mitigate this, uh, the possibility of ending up in a local versus a global minimum uh, in the minimization procedure, we start from multiple initial points and then we choose the best one. Um, the other problem is more, uh, is deeper and it's intrinsic with the actual uh, shape of the function. Um, even if you start from different points, uh, your landscape in parameter space is, is fixed. So how do you change it? I mean, you change it, for example, by changing the function uh, or by adding more parameters or removing some parameters. So that's something else you can try is uh, trying different variational functions to begin with and, and see how the answer changes at the end of the variational procedure. So actually that's uh, uh, my question. So the, uh, the where the uh, neural network comes in is is it exactly uh, 
the uh, to find the appropriate functional form uh, that gives you uh, the neural network will give you a better uh, description or approximation of the function form. Is that correct or no? Right. So the neural network is used. Um, so of course you can have many different flavors if you want of neural networks. You can have very deep neural networks. You can increase the number of parameters. You can have uh, different um, symmetries encoded into the weights of the neural network. So you can make your neural network um, um, very complicated and according to your own needs if you, if you want. Uh, what we use the neural network for is um, to approximate the uh, wave function. So the wave function will give you a um, probability amplitude. So that is what um, the, our neural network is, is doing. So we set up the neural network to be our wave function, but clearly we don't know what is the wave function of the ground state. I mean, that is actually what we want to solve. Uh, when we start, we don't know the answer. So we don't know how the, I mean, in general, you don't know the answer before you start doing your, solving your problem. So we don't know what is the form of the wave function of the ground state. So we just say, okay, we're gonna take a general form for this wave function given by a neural network because a neural network um, can be thought of as a universal approximator for function. Clearly the wave function is special. It will have some symmetries. It will have some properties dictated by the system that you're studying. But when we choose the neural network, we don't actually impose any of these uh, prior knowledge that we have about the system. We just say, let's make a neural network, one of uh, infinite possible neural networks and look at the answer. Then if we don't get the right energy or if we see that we, this neural network doesn't allow us to find a good approximation, we can change the neural network and, and keep going by exploring um, a multitude of neural networks. This is only possible if you know the right answer, you know, if you're comparing with something, okay? So in this benchmarking uh, process, it makes sense. But in general, if you want these methods to be applicable to uh, many different problems where you don't know the answer, then you need to find some guiding principles. And what people do, um, for example, in quantum chemistry or molecular physics, they, they don't know what the answer is for their molecule. And they, they just use maybe as big of a neural network they can use uh, with the current computing resources that they have. Or they are smarter than that and they say, oh, let's use some information that we know our physical system has, like some symmetry. Let's say a molecule is invariant um, under rotations, then we can encode this symmetry into our neural network to make sure that uh, the answer is uh, of a neural network is also invariant under rotations, and so this is what this is the approach that um, 
that we want to take in the future, but it's not what we have done so far because we already knew the correct answer in this case. I see. So you like you are actually solving uh, for the form of the wave function and the lowest energy, the ground state energy at the same time. Yes. Like yes. By, okay by per, uh, okay by estimating all the many parameters at 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 one. Uh, right. Yeah. This variational methods is is uh, is doing two things. It's optimizing for two things. You know, it's um, finding the lowest energy by changing the parameters of the neural network according to uh, the uh, gradient descent algorithm. And also some other things that are more technical, but. Um... Yeah, actually uh, you asked, answered my uh, follow-up question. Uh, I did want to ask if you're using any of the symmetries in the uh, problem mm -hmm. to design the neural net, uh, let's say, um, uh, the, uh, SU2 or, or, right, or whatever. Right. Uh, we don't yeah, do, right now. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, yeah. You, you can, yeah, you can do that uh, with the, 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 um, the, uh, uh, co co um, the, uh, uh, invariance or the, uh, yeah, there are equivariant, uh, uh or equi yeah, equivariant yes, I, that, that's the word convolutional network or graph the network. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of research on this because, um, people have discovered that that, that structure in the neural network helps the training a lot. You know, you can really find the optimal point very quickly. But I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, a posteriori, it's kind of natural to think uh, that that's the case because you are introducing information about your system. You're saying, oh, my system is like this, then I'm gonna make my neural network very similar to my system. Yes. Um, Eric, could you uh, quickly uh, uh, just, uh, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, repeat the uh, the model that uh, 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 you're having at hand? So, so what what is the Hamiltonian uh, describing in oh, uh, okay. uh, regarding the, uh, right. the black hole? I'm losing track. So there, um, okay, in the paper we look at two different models. They are both matrix models. So the general form is, um, just to simplify, is basically a collection of harmonic oscillators. If you're familiar with that, you know, just uh, uh, masses on springs, if you want, you know, uh, the harmonic oscillator is the free part of the Hamiltonian. And we have as many harmonic oscillators as we have a um, degrees of freedom in the matrices. Okay, so for two matrices in SU2, SU2 has three generators. So for each matrix, we have three degrees of freedom. So in total, this is six degrees of freedom. So you can think of the free part of the Hamiltonian as the Hamiltonian of six harmonic oscillators that are decoupled, so they don't talk to each other. So this is a three theory. Each oscillator just oscillates and has a ground state, and then collectively they, the ground state will be just the sum of the ground state of all the oscillators. 
but this is just a free theory, so it's not really interesting. Um, what really it gives the the energy um, that connects to the um, uh, gravitational theory and black hole and and so forth is the actual uh, interaction or potential term. And in this case, the potential term um, has a strength, which is given by the uh, um, interaction coupling between the different degrees of freedom. And the shape of the potential is uh, some sort of um, quartic function. Okay. So it has terms that are the fourth power of the individual degrees of freedom. And this is the simplest model that we studied. So you can think of it as a free part, which is harmonic oscillators, plus a potential, which has an interaction strength. And as you turn on this interaction strength, the system becomes more and more uh, strongly coupled, where all the degrees of freedom talk to each other and with many interaction terms. Then we studied another um, matrix model that is super symmetric because it doesn't have only um, scalars or bosons. It also has fermions. And supersymmetry is, um, we probably know, it, it's a symmetry between um, particles of integer spin and particles of half integer spin. So fermions and bosons. And in the second matrix model that we study, we include both types of particles or degrees of freedom. And the interaction term in this theory now also includes um, the fermions. So that's the Hamiltonian. Um, Thank in you. words uh, yeah. we, without uh, having equations <laughs> uh, actually i don't quite get it but uh but yeah. thank you and uh, the uh so uh just try to uh, uh connect connect back to your introduction so you're trying to i mean uh, the these uh boson of uh, supersymmetry uh, yeah. It, it, on which side are we? It's on the uh, the uh, the particle theory, uh, gravity side, the particle, or it's on the yeah. field theory. Field theory. Oh, yeah. field theory side. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. And how does it connect back to the? You need some kind of dimensional. I mean, changes or something. No, I mean this is just. Uh... So, are you talking in particular about the the models in the paper, or more generally about the? ADF-CFD. Yeah, yeah, to connect back to the earlier holograms. Oh, okay, okay. So for, for that... Which I don't actually right, right. just want to... For that connection... Back to understand your talk. Yeah, for that connection, you need um, a supersymmetric matrix model with uh, nine of these bosonic matrices and 16 um, uh, fermionic matrices. So it, it's a lot of matrices <laughs> in the end. Uh, we only did uh, you know, two. <laughs> so for connecting back to the actual um, theories relevant for the uh, duality, we would need to scale our methods to many, many more matrices. And and that's that's basically 
the reason why we are, you know, we are starting small to understand if the methods are, um, are good, you know, if they work. And, and then we also study the scaling of the methods, the numerical methods with the number of matrices and with the size of the matrices, because we want to understand what is the best way forward to get to these bigger matrix models that we need for, uh, for gravity. Okay. And uh, we discovered, for example, in the paper that it's, um, it's easier to scale up the deep learning methods than it is to scale up the quantum computing method. Even though the quantum computing method still has some favorable scaling with the number of qubits, um, it's still uh, slower than the deep learning method. And that might be just because of the way we implemented the, the variational functions. But um, in the future, we, we want to keep exploring both ways um, as we move to larger systems. Because the, as you know, quantum computers are becoming uh, bigger and bigger and also um, more precise. So we, um, we are currently applying our methods on, on real quantum computers which have a larger number of qubits than the ones we have used in our paper. So we know that in, in improvements in, in these technologies from the hardware point of view, for example, uh, will help our program. I'm curious, actually, uh, the quantum computer you're using, uh, which one is it? Uh, is it the Google, the Google uh, quantum okay. computer or your you especially so, designed quantum computer? Right. For the, for the paper, we only did a simulation of the quantum hardware in the sense that we didn't actually uh, go into the cloud and send our algorithm on a real quantum computer, but we used um, an emulator or simulator of quantum dynamics to uh, emulate the effects of uh, computing things on a real quantum computer. But, and this was in the paper when, when we first started, but now we are actually using the actual hardware and it is the one from IBM. So we are using the IBM Q systems that are available um, from the cloud. You don't actually have to go to a lab or inside a big fridge. You can just submit your um, algorithms and your jobs uh, to a quantum hardware by using a cloud uh, system. And yeah, for us, it's IBM. Okay. Um, I don't think there's anything more to say other than this is just the first step uh, in, in this research program. And we since the paper was out, we've had a, a lot of feedback and we have several new elements that we want to incorporate in our uh, project. And I can mention some of them. Um, so I already mentioned symmetries for the deep learning part. For quantum computing, uh, I want to mention um, error correction because uh, in the ideal situation, um, 
that we apply to the paper where there is no quantum noise coming from the hardware. Um, we saw that you know things were working pretty nicely, but we know that um, real quantum hardware has um, noise, intrinsic noise coming from the fact that these things are implemented uh, with uh, qubits, superconducting qubits. They actually interact with the environment around them, so the calculations are not perfect. And there are techniques called, um, you know, error mitigation or error correction techniques, which uh, we want to apply to our uh, algorithms as well. And this is also a, a very big line of research in um, quantum information processing. Um, and, but I thought, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, I, I thought the uh, quantum computer correction uh, correction is intrinsic to the uh, the quantum computer itself. Uh, they have to do this uh, for their computation. But are you saying that you have to uh, whoever writes the algorithm has to do it uh, by hand yourself? I, I thought the yeah um, once right. the, the correction is there. I mean, whoever builds the quantum computer has to do the quantum correction. Them, uh, uh, the, the machine has to do the. It comes with the machine, right? No. Uh, the machine. Surprise. Yeah, no. I I can explain. So the machine can reduce the intrinsic errors due to, uh, for example, their gate not being perfect, uh, or the um, the way the operations are actually implemented on the hardware because you know you write software right then you have to um, compile the software in machine language and and this process is called uh, transpiling for quantum computers and so they that aspect is taken by the hardware people and the them. but still when you do a measurement uh, you know that your measurement would not be perfect because of all these errors, even though they can be reduced by the hardware, they're still there. And there are software ways, so, you know, some sort of post-processing ways to actually reduce them in the software. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, if if there are uh, there's residual uh, errors yet to be corrected, I would think that it would be dependent on the hardware error correction code, then depending on what error they have corrected, then you do the uh, residual error correction. I mean, uh, it seems to be these two are not decoupled process. They're, they're not independent. They, you have to know what they have done in order to do what you're going to do, right? Is that right? No? Mm -hmm. I... Um... I think maybe we're we're talking about different things. Okay, maybe we are. <laughs> there are okay, go ahead. There, yeah, there are some errors that um, cannot be removed with with current quantum computers, no matter what the hardware does. And those ones we can reduce them by applying some post processing techniques that are called error mitigation techniques. If you're thinking about a quantum computer that takes care of correcting the errors, then you are correct. Then we don't have that yet. We don't have 
what is called a fault tolerant quantum computer or error correcting quantum computer okay because that will take care of of the errors by itself okay by using some sort of special encoding or some sort of uh, mechanism that is intrinsic to the hardware um, this is not what we have for example right now on the ibm q system so we still have to do something at the software level i see okay i i think we are probably talking about two different levels there yeah error yeah correction. i think so i think um yeah yeah i'm talking about the the uh, uh how they do the qubits and then if there's any errors uh, coming into the qubit i think you're talking about the uh, uh the translation into the quantum in the, the the system when you map this your problem into that problem and then uh, uh coming back and there's uh, uh extra error uh, that you have to correct uh, but that uh, probably has nothing to do with the the uh, measurement uh error that uh, the the hardware on a hardware level okay yeah i had a question just to just to be clear mm -hmm. on what the what the algorithm pieces that are, are being performed on the actual quantum computer is that the the minimization of the Hamiltonian with the um, okay right uh, yeah this is a good point um, I didn't say it so on the quantum computer we are using uh, what is called a variational quantum eigensolver which is a hybrid classical quantum algorithm so there are quantum pieces and classical pieces to the algorithm. So what are the quantum pieces? So the quantum pieces are basically the operations that you would run on a quantum computer. And for this algorithm, the um, evaluation of the energy, which is the expectation value of the Hamiltonian with respect to a quantum state is done efficiently on a quantum computer. But the minimization, you know, the changing of the parameters and the, um, the um, minimization, the, whatever algorithm you choose for that is classical and runs on a classical computer. So the, basically you have a, a, a loop uh, that takes parameters, generates a quantum circuit, and then evaluates the Hamiltonian, the energy, using a quantum computer with this quantum circuit and then takes the result of that which is now a number uh, or a set of probabilities and then goes back to the classical part of the system which takes care of changing the parameters according to some minimization rules and then the loop restarts from new parameters I understand. So you're using um, quantum energy evaluation, uh, but you mentioned gradient descent for your your actual minimization. minimization. Are yes. you? Yeah. And and is there a need in your application for dynamics as opposed to gradient descent minimization? Right. Would that help any annealing schedule or anything? Right. Right now we are doing the the this algorithm the PQE. There there is no dynamics um sorry yeah there is no dynamics but there there are yeah different algorithms that could uh perform the same type of minimization like the annealing one um they're they're just different types of algorithms that we did not explore 
And do you think that is that an area of interest? Would that be helpful for and you know, avoiding local minima if you had some type of annealing exploration of the space? Yeah, I, I guess it's um, for this specific problem. Um, we we have been kind of you know quite successful at with this algorithm, and we we haven't thought about looking at. Uh, other possibilities. Um, we do have another direction that we are exploring, where the um, the annealing might be uh, might be a good solution for us, but not for this specific project. And and I suppose that you're probably exploring different set of parameters and all that. Uh, you're also using, uh, let's say, uh, um, the Monte Carlo uh, method. And if uh, if you do, uh, let's say going down different paths, um, would the uh, uh, the method that uh, let's say, for example, the Monte Carlo used in branch uh, Monte Carlo used in the Alpha Go uh, Alpha Zero would mm -hmm. uh, be helpful to you? Yeah, those are um, different algorithms to look for a you know optimal point. Um, we we didn't use um, anything along those lines. Um, we we looked at four classical algorithms that um, are basically just exploring locally what happens to the gradients um, by shifting the parameters a little bit and then looking at the result uh, before deciding where to go. Uh, we didn't have any. Uh, um, more global algorithm or genetic algorithm or Monte Carlo tree search algorithm um, um, for this project. Of course, there are so many different ways of uh, solving an optimization problem uh, that uh, you know we couldn't look at them all. It's it's just a choice that we had to make, but uh, they are all you know they're all possible solutions that one can explore. Yeah, definitely. Even, yeah. I, uh, given infinite manpower. So I had a question sort of in regards to that. Um, I guess like this is what uh, Hansen and Serena were actually talking about. Do you, um, how do you sort of like initialize your weights and biases mm -hmm. to make sure that you have the optimal solution? Because um, I, I think like this is eventually boils down to like a convex optimization problem, if I'm not right. mistaken. And um, and I think, um, do you actually approximate the sort of like the weights on biases to actually go near to the, you know, the ideal solution um, um, that you we actually propose right. on how do you okay. make sure that it does? Sure. Um, this is, um, instead of thinking about uh, convex optimization, where you know that there is a true minimum um, you have to think more in terms of the landscape of a loss function in a, a neural network uh, problem where you know things are not convex and the parameter space is very large and very complicated. So there is no uh, guarantee that you will find the optimal minimum. And actually, research in machine learning or in deep neural network is uh, 
showing that you do not really need uh, to find the optimal minimum um, because there are many uh, local minima that are still good enough for your problem. And this is true in machine learning when you know you're you're trying to um, solve a classification task or a regression task. Um, in in our case, um, with this variational method, um, we we do want to get as close as possible to the the ground state. And so what we do is we we try different initial points, and and then we look at the ensemble of solutions that we get. So yeah, the, the initialization is, is random uh, and, and we test several of them, gotcha. several, several of these random uh, choices. Gotcha. And also like um, along the lines of um, the, your correction for quantum computing, I was thinking mm -hmm. that um, if I'm not mistaken, IBM Q actually provides emulators um, that you can actually send prior to your simulation. Yes. I mean, like they can, they also provide you this um, emulator. Um, I thought, I thought also like, you know, that error correction was also involved in the emulator stage so that it can prepare you for any kind of software level uh, error it, correction it that is. you might encounter. That's true. Okay. Yes. Okay. So the um, these emulators um, have different levels of complexity. One of them is the one we used in the paper, where there is um, where everything is ideal. There's no error. So it's it's basically like saying um, we have a perfect quantum computer, um, which is not the case. Of course, it's just a emulation of a perfect quantum computer, and that's how we obtain our results. And so we actually do not know what happens when the um, emulator is not ideal. So that's the next step. So the next step also in the complexity of these emulators is saying that, okay, the ideal part is now uh, somehow disturbed by uh, a noise model. So the noise model is a representation of what a real quantum hardware would look like uh, for IBM, for example. And you can add that on top of the ideal emulator. So that helps you um, understand what you would be facing if you were using a real quantum hardware, but you're still emulating, okay? And then the, the, the final step is, uh, okay, now I don't want to do emulation anymore. I want to do the real quantum computation on real quantum hardware. So you go directly into the hardware and then look at the results. So these are the three steps. There's an ideal case. There is the ideal plus uh, noise model uh, step. And then there is the real noisy quantum hardware. And they're all accessible from the software. Gotcha. And and my last question, like, um, so this, um, matrix calculation is based on, I, I presume you said, I, I mean, like if it was said like it's mm -hmm. ADS-CFT correspondence, so I'm assuming yeah. it's an yeah. anti-desitter space. Right, the, okay. the correspondence right now is, is not with the real 
um, universe that we live in, which is uh, the Sitter-like. It's actually the anti-Sitter version of it. Gotcha. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I have a very general question. So, like, uh, in situation where we are forced to, you know, use approximation solutions to a problem, then what are we losing? Can you can you uh, 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 share some thought about that? Thanks. Um, approximations uh, in regards to what exactly? Like, you know, uh, computing uh ground state energy or you know whatever uh you know uh so if we we don't yeah. have an exact solution and we are forced mm -hmm. to use approximation mm -hmm. solution then what yeah. what will, what we will be losing in general yeah okay so i mean we do that all the time um in in science uh we always have some approximations and we we need to find a a way to handle these systematic differences um, by studying, for example, how the answer behaves as a function of um, changes in um, our approximations. So one typical example is when you when you try to do a um, I don't know like a climate model, then you are um, you are introducing a grid of points um, in in your simulation because computers handle you know greater points and that's clearly an approximation of the atmosphere the atmosphere is not a grid of points it's a continuous space and these approximations introduce errors and you have to study um, how the final answer depends on changes of this grid of points so in, in this case, um, when we are approximating the wave function using uh, quantum circuits or um, neural networks, uh, we are introducing approximations of the ground state. And these approximations will depend on the type of uh, ground state that we are trying to solve for. And it is not something that you can do much about a priori. And so you would need to test, if you don't know the answer, you would need to test different um, approximations and see, for example, if there is a systematic trend in one direction or another, or if you can derive rigorous uh, theoretical bounds on your answer and say, oh, I got this answer. And formally, mathematically, I can tell you that the real answer will always be smaller than this, or will always be 50% larger than this. And it, that will depend on, on your specific problem. And, and for this problem that we studied, uh, this is really at the beginning of, of a research direction. So we don't know very much about this yet. We, we need more experiments. We need more theory. We need a lot uh, more time to study this system. I see. I think it is uh, related to what you mentioned in the paper about uh, difficulty of evaluating systematic error or something like that, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I, I think I don't have anything else to add um, on my side.
Katarina, do you do you have questions or? Um, yeah, thank you so much. You and I, yeah, I have that question, but um, so more, but it's probably not very educated. But um, so what, how did you uh, construct because you're using your basically your own version of a universe? So, yep. what are the basic characteristics just for the you know, for the general audience to understand maybe a little bit better your model that you're using? Like, for example, you know, does it have this characteristics of increased entropy or, um, um, mm -hmm. or yeah, like, yeah. okay. So if I, if I had to keep this, um, simple, um, and, and related to the paper, I would basically say, look, the paper is studying two simple matrix models which have no real connection to any space-time or theory of gravity that you care about but it um but the paper basically demonstrates that you can use quantum computing and deep learning efficiently to solve this system which means that we now have a path towards exploring bigger systems of matrices that are actually connected to a um, ads uh, theory of gravity and in this special theory of gravity um, you actually do have all the nice properties um, that you that you want in a physical theory of quantum gravity. The, I think the main difference between uh, that theory of gravity and, and our universe is that um, it's, it's much easier in, in that theory to define a surface boundary um, because in anti Sitter, the universe has a very clear boundary, which our universe doesn't have. Um, you can still define it in our universe uh, under certain definitions that uh, people have thought of. But um, in anti-decider, it's easier to do. That's why um, most people work in that space. Um, you, you still get all the nice properties and, and you still and you can still learn a lot about a quantum theory of gravity in general by working in that space. Yeah, interesting. So it's your mouse model of the human brain. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's your universe, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. You can you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. You were very generous. We are almost going on for two hours, so um, yeah. we really appreciate it. And please come back anytime if you have like updates or you want to just join our discussion rounds, um, please come back and um, yeah, we Yeah, we I think there, there will be updates. Yeah, yeah, we, we are very curious to learn about them. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Um, it was a pleasure. And um, yeah, yeah, I think everyone the enjoyed the training.
I hope yeah, you I mean, enjoyed it's, it's your very first complex. time on Clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not used to talking this much. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of demanding on, yeah, on, my, on my body. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I usually I just to... sit in front of a computer, so just <laughs> okay. typing. So you need some, some, you know, diversity in, in environment, yeah, yeah. novel environment. So it's good. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. Can I, yeah, yeah, thank I you. empathize with you? <laughs> Is it okay if I ask a very quick question? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so uh, I think it took many years before we um, came to a... Um, um, a theory of a photon and a quantization of uh, what the field of a photon's minimum mm -hmm. wavelength yeah. and properties might be. Um, so if you were to guess, um, theoretically, if, if you were to quantize gravitational waves, um, uh, what would you say is, uh, you know, a sort of the range of parameters we might be looking at? So, I mean, gravitational waves um, were already predicted by general relativity um, and you can think of them as you know similar to electromagnetic waves so you know the the classical version of the photon is this electromagnetic wave and then you can think of the gravitational wave as the classical analog of a graviton which is the uh, quantum version of the gravitational wave uh, but I, I don't know if we don't know exactly, you know, what kind of interactions, quantum interactions, these particles uh, can have. And um, I, I don't think I would be able to guess anything other than um, we are really working uh, using this holographic duality, which is helping a lot in understanding what kind of um, expressions and parameters and interactions we really can write down uh, on paper for these uh, quantum uh, gravity theories. But right now there is no single one quantum gravity. There are several attempts at the theory of quantum gravity. And then we, we are still in, in the early stages, you know, kind of like just uh, after Newton, people were still trying to grasp their understanding of what what the you know uh laws of dynamics were uh and now we're like okay what what are these laws of quantum gravity and it's a it's very exciting but also kind of you know a long process um thank you i, I just wonder if uh while you're doing most of these uh, calculations um i I'm, um would you assume that the um planck scale is the small um you know, you uh, you continue with the same assumptions that you use for electromagnetic waves while dealing with uh, theoretical models of gravitational waves. Um, I, I think yeah, the 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 Planck scale will uh still be our you know limit for for these theories, and you know also the uncertainty principle and and all that stuff will will still be uh of uh. Uh, in effect, let's say, in, in action in this theory. But personally, I mean, um, I work more on, on the particle side uh, of the theory. 
um, where I can do the simulations. And, and in the particle side, you, you just have quantum mechanics. So it's much simpler for me. Awesome, thank you. Um, uh, and the reason I ask um, is if, for example, a theoretical gravitron could be smaller than the Planck scale, would you still be able to do um, similar matrix multiplication related um, um, simulations, but only with maybe a revised form of uncertainty principle for a smaller than Planck scale sort of gravitrons? Is that possible with the existing methods? Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think so. No, I think um, everything as it is formulated right now um, is is kind of you know still setting the scale at the Planck scale. I mean, there's nothing we can say about smaller scale. Thank you so much for taking my question. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Enrico, and um, yeah, enjoy your day. Thank you very and much. Yes, I hope. Yeah, thank you and come back anytime. And um, thank you everyone in the audience and everyone that asked questions. Um, it was, I think, a great discussion. I enjoyed it very much listening to it. And yeah, come back tomorrow uh, for my time morning, 10 a.m. We have also a physicist from Dr. Schwartz from Israel giving a talk about his x-ray computational ghost fluorescence ma mapping uh, where he um, can uh, look for different chemical elements. Um, it's a new tool um, that's very exciting and will be very useful in the future for new developing new materials um, for all kinds of um, applications and um, and yeah, we'll have us uh, at this time, um, Dr. Gaulitano talking about uh, sleep deprivation and what it does to your brain. And we'll have uh, LSD, a human study researcher coming this week and the microbiome linked to anxiety researcher coming. So um, yeah, come back and I'll hope um, to see, to hear you all, not see you, but hear you all soon. And thank you, Enrico. It was a pleasure. I appreciate. It. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you, Enrico. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. Bye, bye.